Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. If you're a visitor, I'm Chad. I'm senior pastor here. We're blessed to have you with us. We're going to be looking at Genesis 16. If you will, turn with me to Genesis 16. I will be reading the entire chapter this morning as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Just coming out of two visions that the Lord has given Abram to assure him of faith that he will keep the promise of the seed to him, that he will have many multiplying offspring, and that he will keep the promise of the land to him. Ultimately, both of those promises reminding us that the Lord is going to renew with man what's been lost in the garden at the fall, that we will once again dwell with God as his people under his blessing. He will be our God and we'll be his people. And as we've come through this story, seeing that, if you will, being pictured to us in Abram, we now come to chapter 16 following those two visions and begin to see the impatience of man with the promises of God. Don't miss the fact as I start reading this that this follows the chapter in which we've just had two visions assuring Abram that God will keep his word, that his word is gold, that he can take it to the bank. Right after that, we get this, and it's supposed to startle you. Genesis chapter 16, we begin reading... In verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be Numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. 
his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give thanks and ask for his help in the hearing of it. Father, we thank you that you have superintended by your spirit to reveal to us your holy will in redemption. We give thanks that the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaks to us by the spirit through his word. And we pray that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. We recognize that this is not merely a word for Moses and Israel in the Exodus, but it is the word of God. We see here, Father, a picture so clearly of our own impatience with your providence, our own willingness to sin, to grasp after the goods that you give, rather than to trust you to give them in your time. We pray that we would learn well this text, that your spirit would help us to understand the word, to be rightly convicted and encouraged, to look to Christ and to trust that you're a good father, a good provider. We pray your spirit would do this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, I am sure that many of you have probably thrown a fit. And maybe at the time you were throwing the fit, you didn't know you were throwing a fit until your parents told you, you're throwing a fit. Stop throwing a fit. You know what I mean when it happens. You don't get what you want, and so you get a bad attitude, and you cry, or you scream, or you just generally melt down in some way. You throw yourself on the carpet and start squirming around and banging. Whatever it is that you do when you throw the fit, slam the door, run to your room, throw yourself on your bed. I have no idea what you all do, but I'm sure you've done it. Maybe this part would surprise you, children. Adults do that too. Adults throw temper tantrum. They're just a lot more dangerous and a lot more sophisticated. Adults do it, if you will, this way. One way, maybe, if you will, is they want to go get the thing that they want no matter how bad the idea is in the getting of that thing. And so when things go awry, after they go grasp after that thing they really want, rather than patiently waiting for the Lord, they sinfully go get it. After that happens, they then begin to justify their bad behaviors. That's how their fits begin. They justify their bad behaviors. Now, when does that justification start? Once things go awry, 
after they've gone after getting the thing they wanted. If they get the thing they wanted and nothing goes awry, no adult temper tantrums occur. But if they get the thing they wanted, sinfully, and then they have bad consequences for that, they start to throw a bit of a fit. They blame God. They blame others because things have not gone well for them. That's what I mean by their temper tantrums looking more sophisticated. I'm not getting what I wanted from my spouse, so I commit adultery. You don't have an affair. An affair is like a nice evening out, right? You commit adultery. Let's just call it what it is. So I commit adultery, and then, you know, it's, it's the beginning of sort of taking what I want because it's not being fulfilled for me and my spouse in some way, something I'm demanding. So I go commit adultery. Things go south. And I come into the pastor's office and I point at my spouse and say, it's their fault. And then I point at God and say, it's his fault. And it's a kind of way of having a very destructive sort of temper tantrum. We have our own deepest desires, our own things we want above all else. Things that we do not trust the Lord for. And rather than trusting the Lord for those things, we grasp after them. We sinfully chase after them. We lack patience with God's providence, and so we sinfully grasp for what we believe we must have now. And when I say the Lord's providence, I mean the way in which the Lord provides for us. You hear that word in there, providence? The way in which the Lord provides for us. God created all things. God also decreed all things that are and all things that will be. In his sovereign goodness, he decrees and directs all things to his own chosen end. All of them. Without exception. As R.C. Sproul was fond of saying, there's not one random molecule in the universe. We often become impatient, though, with God's sovereign and benevolent decrees concerning our own lives because we either do not believe that he is working all things or because we do not trust he is working all things for our good. Matthew Henry, one of the Puritan writers, rightly warns us, if our wishes, our desires, the things we want, be not kept in a submission to God's providence, then our pursuits will scarcely be kept under the restraints of his precepts or his commands. In other words, what he's getting at is that our lack of trust in God's providence is often exposed by our impatience. And our impatience is exposed by our foolish disobedience to God's clear commands. But faith, I want you to hear this, faith does not make us impatient. Faith waits. The grace of faith produces the fruit of patience. Today we'll consider that truth in Genesis 16. And I'm really going to walk through the passage in three parts. First, we are going to look at Sarah's impatience with God's providence. That really is scene one, if you will, in this narrative. Scene one you find in verses one through six. Scene one is Sarah's impatience 
with God's providence. Second, we're going to look at Hagar's impatience with God's providence. That's really in scene two. In scene two, which really comes out in verses 7 through 16, or really 14, but starts in the very end of verse 6. So we'll look first at Sarah's impatience with God's providence, then Hagar's impatience with God's providence, and thirdly, we're going to consider God's, listen, God's patient kindness toward all his people. God's patient kindness toward all his people. So let's look first at Sarah's impatience with God's providence. Sarah's impatience with God's providence. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. This is our introduction. Verse 1 is setting the scene, if you will. If you've read a novel, you have the setting that comes. You're setting the scene. Sarai had borne Abram no children, but she did have a female Egyptian servant named Hagar. They had been in the promised land for about 10 years now. If you remember, they set out. Abram was 75. When they set out, they were both elderly And they had no children because Sarai had been barren her entire life. We learned that at the end of Genesis 11. Genesis 12, we learned there's 75 when they set out from the promised land. It's been about 10 years now that they've lived in the promised land. And Sarai has borne Abram no children. But they had this female Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, where is Hagar from? Well, if you remember in Genesis 12 and verse 16, in Genesis 12, during the famine, Abram had taken his family down into Egypt. And while in Egypt had sort of given Sarai to Pharaoh, God intervenes, protects Sarai, protects the seed of Abraham, and God then works on Pharaoh to give them things. And in verse 16, one of the things they were given was female servants. So how do they get an Egyptian female servant? Well, Genesis 12, 16. When they were in Egypt, Pharaoh gave them these male and female servants. And the whole setup here is fascinating. It's fascinating because Sarah's barrenness is a real problem. It's not an imagined problem. There's a real problem. Sarai is barren. She had given Abram no son. But God had promised Abram would have a son. He even gave a vision in Genesis 15 confirming that problem. But you can see why the keeping of that promise seems an impossibility. Abram and Sarai are both now elderly. She's, if you will, past the age of being able to have children. And she's been barren her whole life. So the promise seems like it's impossible. Now we live in an era... We live in a time, if you will, where in some ways this story does not, it doesn't immediately resonate with us. In other times or cultures, this and other cultures even in the world today, this story would have a kind of immediate resonance, but less so with us. Why do I say that? Because we live in an era where children are not really desired. We tend to see them as a kind of hindrance to our goals. Now I know some of you don't see them that way, but I'm talking about across our nation. 
if we're going to have children, let's wait until we're older and then let's only have a couple of them. We want people to marry older. We want people to have children older and to have fewer children. Why? So that they can be successful in their various endeavors professionally. We do not see children, think about this, we do not see children as securing our future. We don't see them as securing our future. In fact, we see children as a kind of curse upon our future. An expense, a drag upon what we could otherwise achieve without them. An inconvenience. You know this is even bleeding into your households. You know how I hear it? Whenever a young husband in our church is staying home with the children because the wife is going somewhere, he tells me, oh, I'm babysitting. You're babysitting. It's called being a dad. You're doing what your wife is doing all the time. Welcome. They're not a drag on your time or your future. But that's how we tend to see them. We should prevent their coming at inconvenient times. And if they sort of want to arrive at an inconvenient time, then we have ways to kill them off. We conceive of marriage. When we do, we don't think of it as producing a godly offspring. We think of marriage as romance, self-fulfillment in some way. That was not so in the ancient Near East. I don't mean they didn't have any romance. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't get into details about most of their romances unless you read Song of Solomon in a particular way. What I want to get at is in the ancient Near East, they didn't see children as a hindrance. For a man... If you were a man in Abram's time, children secured your financial security and your personal protection. You didn't have a government. See, in Canaan, they didn't have Social Security and Medicare. Did you guys know that? They didn't have retirement plans. You couldn't invest in the stock market. Basically, what you had was children. That's what you had. You also didn't have ADT to put security systems in your house. Police officers who would swing by and make sure things were okay and secure. What did you have? Sons. Good sons. They would provide for you and they would protect you. Look with me at Psalm 127. You'll see this clearly there. Psalm 127. Now, depending on the scholar, it's a song of the sense of Solomon. Some scholars argue this is actually David writing this psalm for Solomon, so it's for Solomon, not of Solomon. Others argue it's Solomon. Either way, here's a man reflecting on the truth. Here's the king of Israel reflecting on the truth for God's people, singing it. Notice verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman... Stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, here's what he's driving at. The vain and worthless efforts of human self-sufficiency. As the king of Israel even, it is vanity and it is worthless to put forward your efforts trusting in your own work to build the house to fortify the city. Total vanity. 
You can't provide for yourself. Now look what he goes on to say with the blessing that comes from the Lord. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. In other words, when you're a young man having children and raising those children, they're like arrows in your hand. You're directing them aright to the proper target. And that does not, please hear this, it's not just a moral sense of I'm directing these little arrows, if you will, aright to the proper target. It's a protective sense in that I'm raising them to protect our family. Look what it goes on. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. They are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So hear this. What does he mean? You shall not be ashamed when you speak to your enemies in the gate. If you have a quiver full of sons, like a whole bunch of arrows, if you will, ready for war, and you go see your enemy in the gate, you shall not be put to shame when you meet your enemy in the gate. You know why? Because you can look at him and say, look, brother, you can come at me, but I've got more sons than you have. I'm protected. I'm provided for. And every single one of those, if you will, gifts of protection and provision are gifts from the Lord. God opens and closes the womb. God blesses the men with all of this. And so a man in Abram's time would want to have a quiver full of children, particularly sons. That would be his greatest desire, if you will, and his greatest honor. So what do you think then? If that was the great desire and honor of men, then what do you think was the deepest desire and honor for women? Childbearing. Childbearing, particularly sons. See, it was the greatest honor in the household and in the land to have many children. For a man and woman in the ancient Near East, children were their hope, their reward, I mean in an earthly sense, their reward, their honor, their future. That's why a man is blessed, not only sees his children, but his grandchildren. I got to see... Mine by picture last night as my son and daughter-in-law had our first grandson. Tonight, hopefully if they get to come home from the hospital, I'll get to see them, him in person. Such a blessing. If you think of the ancient Near East, though, it's a blessing at a, at a, to a degree that we don't quite understand in our own culture. It's like the whole ancient Near East was Whitney Houston singing, I believe children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Not the rest of the garbage in that song, but you understand the point. If you don't know that song, I'm dating myself, I know. As a result of that, we often see men and women taking their future into their own hands. They deeply desire something. They must have that thing. And so they participate, and you can see this in the scriptures, in sexual immorality to get it. They participate namely in polygamy to gain the future outcome they want. Sarah will encourage Abram 
to commit adultery to enter a polygamous relationship. Look at verses 2 through 4, 16, 2 through 4. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This seems, by the way, it's true. It's true on its surface. Who opens and closes the womb? The Lord. But this seems to be more than just her stating a theological truth. She seems to be stating the theological truth in the form of a complaint. We can do that. You've probably done it. You don't get what you want. Well, the Lord is sovereign, and this is what he's decided. Not, therefore it's good, but therefore I'm ticked at him. Goes on. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, Sarai is encouraging, as I said, Abram to commit adultery, to enter a polygamous relationship. Sarai is taking matters into her own hands. She's taking a concubine wife for Abram, if you will, participating in the first surrogacy that we find in Scripture. Now, surrogacy, or taking this kind of concubine wife as a surrogate wife, so that you could have a child, if you're a barren woman, and you take your slave, and you give her to your husband, so that she'll produce a son for you. Surrogacy, if you will. They're participating in this. That's fairly common in that time and era, from what ancient Near Eastern scholars tell us. It might surprise you to know, but you shouldn't be surprised, because nothing's really new under the sun, that we are not the first generation of man trying to find ways to play God. We've just become more sophisticated in our technology in doing it. But we're not the first to take a crack at it. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, man has always been trying to play God. And this is clearly a sin. Genesis 2.24 tells us a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you read Matthew 19, Jesus makes it clear that Genesis 2.24 is commanding monogamous relationships between one man and one woman in marriage. Clear. This is clearly a sin. And Abram and Sarai know it's a sin. And the language here in Genesis 16 is actually really important in demonstrating that. Hopefully you started to see some of it. But look again at verse 2, the very last phrase of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. If you're not aware, this is the same language of Genesis 3.17. Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Same language as Adam's fall. Now go to verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar. Same Hebrew word as Eve took the fruit. And what does it say next? Took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, 
her husband as a wife. Same also in Genesis 3, 6 in the Hebrew. As Eve took the fruit and gave some to her husband, and as Adam listened to the voice of his wife, so Sarai takes Hagar and gives him to her husband, and Abram listens to the voice of his wife. Sarai, like Eve, is taking matters into her own hands because she desires something. She believes that good is greater than obedience to God's word. She'll choose to sin to get it. Abram, like Adam, is abdicating responsibility and participating in sin. Abram knows God. Abram believes God. And God has credited to him his righteousness. We heard that in Genesis 15, 6. Abram saw the vision of the multiplying seed and believed God. And yet Abram abdicates his responsibility and listens to the voice of his wife and participates in polygamy. Abram and Sarai are being portrayed as participating in a kind of fall. And that sin will become costly to them and to Israel in a number of ways. They fail to trust the Lord. Listen, no matter how well-intentioned their act, we want an offspring. It was sin. They became impatient with God's providence and thus broke his precepts, broke his law. Look at Genesis 16, 4 again. Read through verse 6. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Hagar saw she had conceived and looked with contempt on Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, these short verses demonstrate what a mess their sin has made. Hagar, the younger slave, looks with contempt upon Sarai, her mistress. What's happening here? Well, basically, Hagar knows she's able to give something to Abram that Sarai couldn't give to Abram. Hagar can now give Abram the son he wants. Sarai can't. So now, if you will, she imagines herself to be more exalted than Sarai. She's more honored than Sarai. You know, sadly, few of us can handle these kinds of blessings well, huh? The Lord extends some kindness to us, and we feel vindicated with regard to another, and we pat ourselves on the back. That's essentially what's happening here with Hagar. She's been taken advantage of. She knows it. The Lord, if you will, in her mind, has vindicated her with the son. And she starts patting herself on the back, looking down on Sarai, who sinned against her in this way. Sarai then turns and blames Abram. So she blames Sarai, if you will. Sarai blames Abram. And Abram abdicates responsibility again. 
What does he say? She's like, look what you brought on me, Abram. You guys recognize this pattern from the garden? Look what you brought on me, Abram. May the Lord judge between you and me. And he's over there going, difficult woman. First you wanted me to go there, and now you're going to blame me for this problem. Abdicating responsibility. Do what you want with her. Not, you know what? We sinned. We ought to repent and act in a godly manner now. Nope. I abdicate responsibility. And then what does Sarai do? She deals harshly with her. I hope you see the mess, the drama, the problems created by sin. It's so clear here. I often hear people say, well, you know, Genesis endorses polygamy. Have you guys heard of that? Genesis endorses polygamy. And the reason they give is that polygamy is never expressly condemned in Genesis. It's like the narrator never comes in and says, this is a sin. Don't do it. And I often want to reply to people, man, you have got to learn to read. Genesis 2.24 has already told you this is wrong, and the narrator doesn't have to say it's a sin. Why? Because you can see from Genesis 2.24 that it's a sin, and you can see from the story itself what a gigantic, unmitigated disaster is created by this sin. Does it work out well for Jacob when he takes on extra wives, concubines? No. Now, does God bless them through their sin with children? Yes. But does it cause all sorts of strife in the household? Yes. You guys watch movies? When you watch a movie and you see the character doing something you know is going to royally jack up their lives, you don't need a voice to come over and say, now this here is going to cause a problem. Don't do that. Right? You just know, and that's essentially what Moses is doing. You just can see it being played out. And there's a kind of interesting reversal for Israel here. Notice it says Sarai, verse 6, Sarai dealt harshly with her. It's the same language, by the way, that we then read in Exodus when it says that Pharaoh dealt harshly with Israel. So here's Abram and Sarai, the parents from whom Israel will come, dealing harshly with an Egyptian slave. And later we will see the Egyptian pharaoh dealing harshly with Israel as slaves. And the people of Israel coming out of Egypt would recognize by God's word being spoken to them and via what the Lord had done for them that this kind of treatment of foreigners is wicked. It's wicked. Abram is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But in this scene, Abram and Sarai have become like that wicked oppressor Pharaoh. Their sin is clear in that they are not acting like the seed of the woman. They are acting like the seed of the serpent. Sadly, this is what we as believers can often do. We know the Lord... We trust the Lord, and then we become impatient with his providence. We want particular things, 
and we growingly distrust that he will deliver. So we grasp after it ourselves. Like Adam in the garden, like Cain in Genesis 4, like Babel in Genesis 11, we are constantly seeking to make our own way. We do not trust in the goodness and grace of our God. We will take and eat, if you will. And if there's fallout, we will happily blame others, including God. And we often make a mess doing it, don't we? And then we throw a fit about the mess. We see young Christians, for example, looking for a spouse doing this. Teenagers, you're coming up not too long away from where you'll start looking around for a spouse. And you end up wanting a spouse, which is a good and godly thing. But sometimes you end up wanting a spouse so badly, you're not willing to wait for the Lord to bring a godly spouse. So you pursue poor choices. You participate in sinful behaviors. You date people and walk alongside people you know are not pursuing the Lord. Or even if they profess to be pursuing the Lord, they're encouraging you and you're encouraging them in all manner of sin. And you know it. Your relationship is not helping you grow in the Lord. Your relationship is helping you grow in Sinful temptation, if you will, grow in disobedience to parents, begin to lie and deceive. You go to church events even, and you sit next to them and distract each other rather than paying attention. I did all of this stupid stuff, by the way. That's how I know. You participate in sinful behaviors, and then if you keep walking down that road, your life ends up an unmitigated disaster. It's a mess. And then you come into your pastor's office, the very pastors who warned you to knock it off, and you didn't listen. Then you come into their office and you blame everyone around you, particularly the person right next to you, and you blame God. And here's what we often hear. They've changed so much since we got married. And here's my response. No, they didn't. They were that way before you married them. You refused to look. Often. Often the case. You cannot see, if you will, eating the bitter fruit of your own impatient demands. So Sarai's impatience with God's providence creates a mess. And our impatience with God's providence in any number of ways creates a mess. Business folks, you can do this. You can practice an unethical business to try to get ahead. And create a mess. There is a number of ways to do this. Students, you just got to get that test score so you cheat. You guys understand what I'm getting at. You just don't trust the Lord to provide. So you start to sin to grasp after that thing yourself. So let's look at second, not only at Sarai's, but let's briefly look at Hagar's impatience with God's providence. We won't spend much time here because it's Pretty obvious right on the surface. It says at the end of verse 6, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. She fled from her. That is her impatient move. Now look what it goes on to say. She runs away from Abram's house, the place where God has promised to bless, from the husband 
of whose son she's carrying. She runs away because Sarai is harsh with her. She rightly doesn't want to suffer affliction. Who in Hagar's place would not want to run away? But rather than cry out to the Lord or seek his help to wait upon him, she flees. And then we read in verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, it's not like the Lord isn't aware that she was by the spring and he was just wandering around. He's like, they were playing a big old game of hide and seek and he finally found her. Where'd you come from and where are you going? This is the language you also read in Genesis 3. Remember where Adam and Eve hide from the Lord and the Lord comes and begins to question them. He already knows what they've done. He's calling on them to confess. Just like you do when your kids do something dumb and you go in and ask, who did this? You know. You know. And they know you know. And they still try to lie, right? It's the same kind of thing. Well, here comes Hagar. Hagar responds, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. So she just comes right out with it. I'm fleeing from her. She was being treated harshly. So she flees. Verse 9, the angel Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. See, the Lord has blessed you, Hagar, even though it doesn't feel in any way, shape, or form like a blessing presently. The Lord has blessed you to bring you into Abraham's household. Abraham's household is the household the Lord has promised to bless. And the Lord has blessed you with a son from Abram. And you're not looking to the Lord in your distress. Rather, you did what you were not permitted to do. If you notice the scene here geographically, she's fleeing to Egypt. The opposite of the direction of God's blessing. And friends, we're sympathetic with her fleeing. We would likely all consider doing the same thing if we're being persecuted and afflicted. I want to keep pushing this idea. We all become impatient with God's providence. Thus we all try to take matters into our own hands. Let me give one important caveat. I don't want you to hear me saying that you should just sit back passively and wait for the Lord to work. If you're really ill, go to the doctor. If you want a spouse, you've got to meet people and date. Right? We don't live in a culture where you have arranged marriages, whether you consider that good or bad. As a man having a daughter, I think arranged marriages sound like a great idea. She is less inclined to think so. But you, in our culture, you're going to have to meet people, date to get married, right? If you want to make money, you need to work hard. Right? You can't just sit back and, well, I guess you can't sit back and wait for a check. But you understand what I'm trying to get at. If you're in a difficult marriage, seek counsel. If you're having problems with pregnancy, avail yourselves of some of the helpful technology we have. You get the point. What I'm saying is that if you find yourself crossing ethical lines to get what you want, then it's become too important for you. You've become impatient with God's providence. You're now grasping after and taking the fruit for yourself. You need to repent of that.
And let me take that one step further. Sometimes we refuse to trust the Lord, to pray, to rest. And so we never let down until we get the thing we want. We might not be breaking some commandment in our external behaviors, if you will. But internally, we're in turmoil and we're sinning in that we're failing to trust the Lord. So if you will, we rise up early and go to bed late eating the bread of anxious toil. We don't believe the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. There's a kind of active humility in going to sleep, isn't there? You just become entirely helpless. And everything is now in the Lord's control. And if you're grasping for control of all things, sleep can become difficult. Because you have to let go of your grasp. Now, I'm not saying every sleep problem is sin. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying everyone who sleeps like a baby is just humble. Right? Otherwise, I would be a very humble man. I close my eyes, and I'm almost instantly asleep. And then I wake up the next morning. So, but that's not humility. That's just biology by God's grace. But there is a kind of staying up late and getting up early that's driven by your anxious need to control things. We must keep things in all our own grasp so we worry and toil and spin in our minds. We put forth every effort to keep control. And the psalmist calls this eating the bread of anxious toil. If you find yourself eating the bread of anxious toil, unable to rest and slow down and trust the Lord, then you need to repent and rest in God's providence. In the midst of our impatient distrust, though, in the midst of it, though we're all often riddled with impatient distrust, the Lord is still often patiently kind with us. That leads us to a third point, the Lord's patient kindness to Hagar. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now that's the first way the Lord blesses Hagar. First, Hagar will participate in Abram's promise. Remember, Abram is going to be blessed with a multitude of children. And now Hagar is participating in that. That's an honor for her. She's going to have a great multitude of offspring. So here's a woman who has impatiently distrusted the Lord, and the Lord's response to her is to bless her. Now, next blessing, if you will. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. That's what it means. God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God names him Ishmael. This is a second blessing. The second blessing that comes to her is the Lord's reminder to her that he cares for her. God hears her. God has heard her in her affliction. Now, we do not see Hagar crying out in prayer here. We don't see her praying But the Lord has heard her cries and listened, if you will, to her tears of affliction. The Lord hears a Gentile slave. He sees her tears of affliction. The Lord intervenes, even when she's not asking him to. The Lord shows Hagar kindness. Kindness that she does not ask for. We see here that in keeping with God's promise, Abram's household, Abram's tent, if you will, will incorporate and bless the nations. 
Think of your God's sovereign grace. He likely met you and heard you and rescued you when you were not asking for him nor looking to him. That's what we mean when we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I did not find myself. I didn't ask God to come find me. I didn't remove the blindness from my eyes. I didn't ask God to remove it. He did that out of sheer grace. Third, Hagar's son will be a warrior king. Look at verse 12. Third blessing, her son will be a warrior king. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That means he's not going to comport with social norms. That's not a good thing, by the way, but we'll talk about that in a second. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Hagar's son will be a warrior king. In fact, we know from Genesis 17, 20, 25, 9, and 25, 18, that Ishmael is going to live a rather successful life in human terms. Twelve princes will come from him. Genesis 17, 20. He will bury his father Abram alongside his brother Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael together will bury their father Abram together. Genesis 25, 9. He will settle in the area of Arabia and have lived a largely successful life. Genesis 25, 18. Now I want to consider Hagar's response to all this. I'll come back and deal with the curse briefly in a second. Look at verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. There's a kind of play on words. It's like, you're the God who sees me, and potentially in some way, I've, I've seen the God who sees me. You see me. You're a God of seeing. Look what she goes on to say. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Beer Lahairoi is a well that means the well of the living God who sees me. Or the well of the living God who sees. It's a kind of beautiful passage. We're going to see this language again in Exodus 2 when God hears and sees Israel in her affliction in Egypt. The Lord sees and hears and cares for his people. It is because the Lord hears and sees Hagar and shows kindness to her that Hagar comes to repentance. Please hear that, sovereign grace. You may know your sin because of the law of God, but you will not repent apart from seeing the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is when the Spirit opens your blinded eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that you believe and repent. Apart from the Lord's kindness, apart from his grace, you may just feel a kind of worldly sorrow about the consequences of your sin and then attempt to clean up your mess. But true repentance is a fruit of faith in Christ. If you do not know him, if you do not know Jesus... If you have not looked to him, then I encourage you to turn in faith to him and repent of your sins. The God who sees 
you and hears you has sent his son for you. You didn't ask for him. You didn't go searching for him. And he came. And he saves all those who look to him in faith. So if you don't trust him, look to him. The Lord is pleased to forgive your sins in Christ Jesus. With all that said, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the implicit warning here. There's an implicit warning. Ishmael is shown to be the seed of the serpent. He will grow up in Abram's house. Remember the sin of Adam and Eve leads to a seed of the serpent, doesn't it? Cain. Ishmael will grow up in Abram's house. He will be given the covenant promise as a covenant child in Abram's house. He'll be circumcised, receiving the sign and seal, the promise of God to Abraham and to his offspring. But God will not cause the covenant to stand with Ishmael. He will only do that with Isaac. Ishmael will reject the promise. He will trust in himself and make his own way. Now, while Ishmael having 12 princes and a mighty nation coming from him is a blessing in one sense, it's also a kind of cursed mimicry of Israel and her 12 tribes, isn't it? He will dwell over against Isaac. He will be the enemy of God's people. He'll cast off any moral social conventions. And it will only be Isaac and his offspring. This is the fascinating thing. It will only be Isaac, the chosen son, the seed of the woman, and his offspring who will dwell at the well in Beer Lahiroi. Look at chapter 25 and verse 11 briefly and we'll end here. Notice this interesting detail, which isn't here for no reason. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled where? Beer Lahiroi. Only God's people will dwell at the well of living God who sees us. Do you want to dwell at the well? Of the living God who sees you? Do you want to drink from the well of the one who gives to the thirsty without price? The one from whose heart springs of living water flow? Our Lord Jesus Christ? Then you trust in him and him alone. If you want to chase your own way, like Ishmael will, you'll see him do it. You'll never dwell there. Do not trust in your own efforts. Look to the offspring of Abram, the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not take matters into your own hands. You cannot save yourself. Your own efforts to tip the scales of God's justice in your favor are futile. You cannot add one iota of good works to save yourself. Your so-called good works as an unbeliever are damnable. And your good works as a believer are acceptable because Christ sanctifies them. You must trust in the Christ. If you do know Christ already, then you have great comfort that Christ is sufficient for you. You trust him. You trust him to provide. Don't eat the bread of anxious toil. You will not always understand what God is doing. But you can always trust that God is good.
you can. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to trust in you, the living God who sees us, who hears us, who cares for us, who has sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. May we trust in him. May we see that Christ is such clear evidence that you have decreed good for us. The clearest evidence we could have that you have decreed good for us. And may we trust that if you're the kind of father who's given Christ to us, we can trust you with everything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.